Okay, so so just to run through some of the topics that have come up this week, uh, you know, Baruch Hashem, uh, we all saw that uh, the hostage, the first Shiloh was, you know, with the hostage, Uri, uh, I think Magadish was her name, so she was uh, released, Baruch Hashem, from captivity, and it should keep happening, keep happening. So someone asked me, is there a proper bracha to say when uh, someone, when someone is released? Because they heard someone say, Mater Asurim, so the truth is no. The bracha of mater asurim is not said on the release of a hostage. Um, I don't think there is any bracha being said. The only bracha I could conceptually think about is like this: the Shulchan Aruch writes that if you haven't seen your friend in thirty days, you say the bracha of shechianu, and if you haven't seen them for a year, you say the bracha of mechayemesim. Now it's understood that nowadays we don't say this bracha anymore. Of Shlomo Zalman, Halicha Shlomo talks about this. And there's basically two reasons amongst the Paiskim why we don't say the bracha anymore. First of all, when they used to, in the times before cell phones, when they didn't see people for 30 days, and it was war-torn areas, they legitimately didn't know if they were alive. So when they saw the person, they said, Ooh, ah, Baruch Hashem, Shechianu. And after a year, it's Mechayim Esim. Nowadays, you know where people are, you know, you know what's going on. Therefore, there's not as much of a requirement. Um, secondly, also nowadays, uh, it used to be that people were a little more honest, and if they didn't like you, they wouldn't say the Shechionu, and if they said Shechionu, I mean, they, they really cared about you. Nowadays, people are a little more politically correct. Everyone would just say the bracha on everybody. But I will say this, if you were to see someone, you know, Bez Hashem, when the soldiers come home, and they haven't spoken to them in 30 days, if that's the case, and they see them, I, I don't think there's bracha over the telephone, there's no bracha over television, but if you see him, you'd say a bracha Shechionu. Um, so I think if you were to see a hostage, you know, it's like, it's like a zeshita, when, when you have a baby boy, you say the bracha HaToi V'Ametiv. HaToi V'Ametiv and Shechiyano are very similar, it's just HaToi V'Ametiv is where the pleasure is being uh, felt by multiple people. So when a, a, father and mo- a father and mother have a baby boy, they say HaToi V'Ametiv. The father says HaToi V'Ametiv. Now, the question is, do you make a bracha on a baby girl? So technically in the Shulchan Aruch there is no bracha, but Rav Zalman said, you could say Shechianu when you see her for the first time. If you say Shechianu when you haven't seen a friend for 30 days, seeing your baby girl for the first time is definitely included in that. So I think if you were to see the hostage in real life, and, it, and it, you'd maybe have a relationship with this person, and you'd feel close to them, I would think making the bracha of Shechianu would make sense. Over the television, I, I, we don't make brachas on site over television, but... Uh, that that's the only thing I could see. But there's no bracha of matirasur. Okay, just to run, uh, moving right along. The second shaila is an interesting one. Someone asked me that um, they were asked about a makeup tattoo. Makeup tattoo is basically ta- it's, a, it's literally what it sounds like. It's a tattoo uh, that you tattoo makeup on your face. If let's say a woman, you know, let's say her eyebrows are a little thinner and she wants to have thicker eyebrows instead of you know, coloring it in every day, she literally gets a tattoo, and it lasts between one and three years. So it's not as deep of the skin as a tattoo on your arm, but I definitely think it's it's definitely not temporary, but it's not permanent. It's it's one to three years. So someone asked me, she said that she has a friend who did it, and the rabbi said it's fine. So is it a problem? So obviously my visceral reaction to all tattoos is no, right? You know, there's obviously, we've talked about this in the past, there's a misconception that people have that if you have a tattoo, you can't be buried in a Jewish cemetery. That's obviously not true. Of course you can be buried in a Jewish cemetery. That's not a thing. 
But like all misconceptions, it definitely comes from somewhere. Where it comes from is the Gemara tells us in Sanhedrin that they used to not bury uh, people that were killed by the Bezdin because they had capital punishment. They were not buried with their family. Because in Kaivrin, Russia, it's Tzadik. We don't bury a Russia next to a Tzadik. So, and by the way, it's not just a Russia, it's Tzadik. We don't bury a small Tzadik next to a big Tzadik. And there's two reasons given by the Rishonim of why we don't bury a Russia next to the Tzadik. The Sefer Chassidim says that uh, there was a Rav who was once buried next to someone who was not a good person, and he came to the people of Inshul in a dream. And he said, why'd you put me near a bathroom? I can't breathe. It's, it's hard to breathe. And they recognized, they realized it was that, and they exhumed the body and the dream stopped. The other reason is, uh, I think from the Rikanti, that he says that uh, after a person passes away, they reveal secrets to him, secrets of Torah. And they won't do that if there's, uh, if there's a Russian nearby. So it wasn't... So the Indian is, they used to not bury Rishon next to Tzadikim. So who had a tattoo in the 1600s? Rishon. <laughs> The only people that had tattoos were, uh, you know, those that were Mechal Shabbos. And those that became Christian went off the derech. So the Taka didn't bury someone who had a tattoo in a Jewish cemetery, but it's not because of the tattoo. It's because the tattoo was a simon, was indicative of the fact that he was Mechal Shabbos. And it was the Chil Shabbos in other areas that got to them. But it wasn't, it's not tattoos, Dafka. Um, but obviously tattoos are not something that Kalal Yisrael does. It's like, uh, I was once asked about a bust. Uh, bust, uh, you know, it's like a like a like the the head, uh, like a statue, just the head. So, is it okay to keep that? Uh, someone, someone Hashimino had a bust of Marlon Brando, and he and I was asked, is it okay to keep this in his office? So, there's a chuva from Rev Cook, Rev Cook and Das Koyen has a chuva about it, where he goes through and he basically talks about the shita him how you're not supposed to own a statue. And what if it's not a full body? What if it's just the head? And then he goes through the whole discussion. And he concludes basically by saying that while there is room to be lenient, Klal Yisrael avoids these things. And this is not something that we should find a leniency. And I would say the exact same thing, if not more, by a tattoo. It's definitely, my visceral reaction is that it's not okay. But you got to look into it. So let, let me explain a little bit of, of what the Shaila is. First of all, there were Paiskim who outright, out, outright forbade it. Uh, Rav Vosner was not a fan, he answered it. Rav Nassan Gestetner in Lahiris Nassan, Chelech Yud, Simen Samach Dalit, he answers it, Beferish. But the, the reason why I think you have to ask a Shiloh, first of all, everything I talk about, you should always ask a Shiloh, but this, Yemam, you have to ask a Shiloh. There's a trooper from Rav Asher Weiss in Minchas Asher, I think it's Chelech Beis, Simen uh, Nunvov, I think. Um, and he basically says like this the, the, the basic crux of the Shiloh is there's three areas to make it a little bit better than a classic tattoo. Right? The Pasuk says, to have a tattoo. Now this is why it might be better for three reasons. First of all, tattoos are permanent. And the question is, is this considered permanent? Right? A little temporary tattoo that a kid puts a sticker on their arm, it's for sure Now this is not that, but it's also not forever. It's between one and three years. So it seems to be a debate amongst the Rishonim whether this is Asr Doraisa, or Asr de Rabbana. That's point number one. Point number two, this is a tattoo without words. According to some Rishonim, there's only an Isa de Rais and a tattoo if there are words. There's not words, it's uh, an eyebrow. I don't know, it's the shape of an eyebrow, it's shapes. According to some Rishonim, that's only Asr de Rabbana. And lastly, the indication of amongst of many Rishonim is that the Iker 
prohibition of tattoos was because it was connected to idolatry. They used to, um, that was like a sign of idolatry. So this tattoo has nothing to do with idolatry. You're doing it for uh, aesthetics, for beauty purposes. So it, it's basically like this. Most likely, this is at least Asadur Abana. It could be Asadur but it's more likely a rabbinic form of a prohibition. Now, rabbinic form of prohibitions are still very, very severe. I will say this. Rav Asher says that he was lenient. He says that with all this, he does not want to be lenient because, as I said before, tattoos are something that uh, there's a visceral reaction amongst Klal Yisrael. We do not... Uh, we do not err on the side of leniency when it comes to these topics. But Rav Asher Weiss did say, and Rav Adi also in, in, uh, seems to be along his lines, that let's say the person, this is how I would tell someone to ask a Shiloh, if the reason why they're getting this permanent tattoo is just because, as I read online from a lot of these fashion blogs and all these things to understand what this is, that they said basically the main purpose is so that you can wake up out of bed, get out of bed, and you don't have to fix your makeup. If you're doing it just for aesthetic purposes, I don't think that it's something that would be mutter. If, however, there is a woman who has a deformity or some pigmentation issue, and she's embarrassed, like the case of Russia Weiss was asked, is there was a woman, I think she didn't have eyebrows, or there was some issue with her skin, and she was embarrassed to be around her husband, because she wanted to look good, and it's not like, you know, just make sure you look nice before you go to a wedding. It's all day. So Rav Asher Weiss felt that for covered abrios, there are certain circumstances where we waive rabbinic prohibitions in order to avoid embarrassment and for honor of human dignity. And this might be that case. So I would tell someone like this. It's most likely Asher. If you're dealing with a case where there's uh, a deformity or a skin issue and you really want to avoid embarrassment, ask a shayla. Ask a Shiloh. That, that's that's ask a Shiloh. But that's that's the background of that Shiloh. Okay, moving right along. So, I was asked by someone yesterday. His wife, uh, Leilenu, is sitting uh, is in Avelos. And he wanted to know, he knows that there's an issue of that you don't get a gift to someone who's in the year of mourning. He said, does that mean that he can't buy her flowers? What about her wedding? Uh, her anniversary is coming up. Her birthday so what's the story? So, so I told him like this. Rabbi Olam in Chuk uh, has a whole chapter on this. So it's basically like this. The issue with getting someone a gift, getting someone who's in mourning a gift, is an extension of the prohibition, the issue of She'ila Shalom. She'ila Shalom means that we do not greet a mourner. During the year of Avelis, we don't ask him how he is. Now that being said, it's not something that many people are particular about. The Aruch HaShulchan already talked about how it's not something that we're, we're more lenient than we used to be. So, like the actual source of the problem, which is greeting, uh, people are not as particular, but the getting gifts, that's like the extension of it, that they're actually more particular than the source. It's like I, 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 mentioned, this, uh, I mentioned this to someone that many chasanim, by chasidim, they'll wear... They wear like a kapata, they wear a bekesha, they wear a, t- a kittel, but they won't put one of their arms in the sleeve. They'll put like the the sleeve like a, you know over. I don't know if you've ever seen this. And the reason for this is so. What's the pshat? So the reason for this is that there's many chasidishim in hagim regarding the chuppah that are revolving around um, death. <laughs> uh, sounds strange, but there are certain minhagim 
under a chuppah, especially by chassidim, that are done in order to remind the chassan kal of death, and in order to instill awe, and hopefully get them to do tshuva. Like, a famous one is um, that they don't wear uh, jewelry, right? Uh, chassidim, they don't wear jewelry under the chuppah. That's why there was this uh, fake fake skula that evolved, that they give friends of the chassan and kala uh, jewelry. Uh, they say it's a skula to get married. It's not a skula to get married. HaKadosh Baruch Hu allows them to get married despite the fact they're doing a fake skula. It's not a skula. There's no source for it. The source is that there's an old chassidish haminig not to, not, to, uh, not, to, uh, wear, um, not to wear jewelry. Why? Because under the chuppah, you're supposed to remind you of death and we don't, you don't get buried in jewelry. It's the same reason why they also, Hasidim also don't wear knots. They undo the tie knot and they undo the shoelaces because you don't, uh, we don't have tachrichim. The tachrichim, the shrouds don't, don't have knots. So because of this, the Hasidim Kala don't wear jewelry in order to remind them of death, in order for them to do tshuva. So if they're not going to wear jewelry, they have to give it to the friends because they don't want it to get stolen. And that's it's evolved into a minute. So because of this, because of this, in order to instill this Indian of Avelus, in the times of the Gemara, where they used to wear like robes and togas, an Avel would bare his shoulder. He would not cover his shoulder during Shiva. So because of this, many people under the Chuppah will not wear the Kittel on their shoulder. Now, we're not we're not Makbid about that anymore, right? Avelim don't uncover their shoulder, they don't bare their shoulder. But this is another example of like uh, where the Iker Halacha, which is bearing a shoulder we're not particular with, but the extension of it for the Chos under the Chuppah, that still exists. So don't be here, there's like the Iker thing is, is greeting someone, which are not as particular, but getting gifts, that, that people are particular. But I told them like this. First of all, for Kovach Shabbos, many Paiskim are lenient. So for Kovach Shabbos, many Paiskim are lenient that you could greet someone. So I said getting her flowers for Shabbos is for sure fine. Secondly, if it's something that you did last year, meaning before the Avelis, you got her a birthday gift, you got her an anniversary gift, you should do the same. You shouldn't do less. And then just in general, if she, especially by a wife, where if she's going through a hard time and you think getting her a gift will boost her morale and have, help enhance Shalom Bayis, you definitely could be lenient because there were Paiskim, Rabbi Olm quotes this in the footnotes, in Chuk Chaim, there were Paiskim who felt that the whole issue of getting gifts is an extension of Shila Shalom is an extension of greeting a wife. That's not what Chazal forbade. Chazal, when they said don't greet an Avil, they weren't referring to a husband and wife. They were referring to uh, outside outside people. A husband and wife, uh, the whole thing doesn't really apply so much. Therefore, while we are particular, if you need to get her a gift, you definitely, you definitely can. Okay, moving right along. So, three more topics. One is Tevilas Kalim. We know that you have to dip in the mikveh, Minatayra, uh, you have to dip metal. Rabbinically, you have to dip glass. So I was asked about... So the question I was asked is about China or porcelain. Does it require Tevilas Kalim? So basically like this. In the beginning of Yeridea Simen Kuf the Shulchan Aruch writes that we know that glass and metal require Tevila. Earthenware, which is like the pottery like, uh, you know, that you spin on the pottery wheel, does not require tefillah. What happens if you have earthenware, if you have earthenware that's coated in metal? So the inside does not require, but it's coated in a material that requires. The Shulchan Aruch writes, you have to be tevilah in the mikvah, even with a bracha. So, porcelain is, gla- is, is earthenware, 
and china, porcelain or earthenware in china, porcelain in china or earthenware that is glazed with a thin layer of glass. So l'chayra, it requires tefillah. And that's how we paskin. Now the question is, do you make a bracha? I would not. We do not make a bracha for two reasons. First of all, there were some shitas, not like the shach, but there were sh- some shitas, the pritoyer, amongst others, quoted in the Dark Yetshuva, there were some paiskin that hold that while earthenware coated in metal requires tefillah, because the coating requires, earthenware coated in glass maybe not. That's debatable. In addition, Ramayusha Feinstein has a tshuva where he talks about something unrelated, not 100% by tefillah's kalim, but he says that our earthenware, our porcelain in China, it's a very thin layer of glass, so maybe that thin layer of glass is insignificant. So while we don't rely on those opinions to exempt it from tefillah, we do it without a bracha. So that's uh, porcelain in China requires tefillah's kalim without a bracha. Now what about um, what about a Teflon, a Teflon-coated frying pan. Now, Teflon is interesting. That's, you see, till now we talked about a case where you have porcelain, which is the inside is exempt from Tvilas Kalim, but the outside requires. What about the opposite? What if you have a frying pan, which is metal, which requires, but it's coated in Teflon? Teflon is plastic. So the coating exempts. So the Paiskim say, it's unclear what the halacha is in such a scenario, because they never had that. The Paiskim, the Shulchan Aruch only discussed the opposite, where the coating required. Here, the coating exempts. So what do you do when you're not sure? You toivel it without a bracha. That's the halacha for Teflon as well. Okay, the last two shilas I wanted to talk about is drinking water before Havdalah. Um, we know that generally, once, especially when it comes to Shabbos, once there's sort of a change... Once you, let's say, in the beginning of Shabbos, Friday night, once it's sunset, the beginning of Shabbos, or once a woman lights candles, she really can't eat or drink anymore. And a man, once it's sunset, you're Mechabal Shabbos, you can't eat or drink anymore. And definitely once it's sunset, you can't drink even water. That's the halacha. Because you need to hear Kiddush. Shabbos morning, the Chiv of Kiddush begins once you finish Shachris. So once you finish Shachris, you can't drink water anymore. A lot of times people will bring into shul, they'll bring like a bottle of water, a cup of coffee, and they'll be sipping it throughout the davening. Once shacharis is over, you need to hear Kiddush. So too it is by the end of Shabbos. The halacha is once sunset comes, shkia, towards the end of Shabbos, you can't eat or drink anymore. Now, if you washed and you're middle of shalashudis, you can continue eating your meal. But if you didn't wash for shalashudis, once it's sunset, you've got to stop snacking. You've got to stop eating or drinking. So let's say you didn't wash for shalashah. So even if you didn't, you benched. So that means you can't eat or drink anything until you hear Havdalah. The halacha is, though, that before Havdalah, while you're allowed, to, while you're not allowed to eat or drink anything, and even most, so you're not allowed to eat or drink anything, but the Ramah says you're allowed to drink water. You're allowed to drink water before Havdalah. Now, this sounds a little shocking to people, and the reason why it's a little shocking is because the Arizal disagreed. But let's go with the Halacha, and then I'll mention the Arizal. The Halacha is, from the Ramah, you're allowed to drink water and water only. So Rav Heinemann Shlit, uh, in the new Sefer, the Kim year called Manadaber, Rav Heinemann uh, said as follows. He said, um, You're allowed to drink tea, coffee, seltzer, even flavored seltzer, as long as there's no sugar. As long as there's no sugar, it's considered water. So according to Rav Heinemann, you could drink water, tea, coffee, and even seltzer, and even flavored seltzer if there's no sugar, before Havdalah. Now, that would mean, they'll say a woman is waiting for Havdalah, she could drink those things. However, 
The Arizal felt that Al-Pikabol, you shouldn't drink anything, including water. So it's not a great thing to do because the Arizal was very much against it. So for practical halacha, it is not advisable to be lenient because you're going against the Arizal, going against Kabbalah. However, if one finds himself very thirsty and they can't make Havdalah, they could drink water before Havdalah. It's not the end of the world to drink water or seltzer or un, you know, sugar, uh, tea, tea and coffee without sugar. That you have what to rely on. Uh, again, it's not the shita the Arizal, but uh, you know, according to the Ramah, it's technically mutter. Rav Yosef has a tshuva where he was talking about, he talked about how Yom Kippur, once Ne'il is over, right, and they blew Shifer, so Yom Tif is over, you can't eat or drink anything until Avdallah. So you'd have a Myra first. The problem is a lot of times people have a headache and they don't feel well during Myra. So he says, let them drink water against the Arizal, but according to Halach, it's permitted. And that way they'll be able to dive in Meirev as a mensch. Now, I don't know if that's something I would do, but it's just good to know that technically water is permissible, api halacha, but not api kabbalah. Okay, the last discussion is the laws of zimun. The laws of zimun is that when three people eat together, they have to do a zimun. When ten people eat together, they have to have a zimun b'shem Hashem. Now, there are differences between Ashkenazim and Sfardim, um, there are some differences. I'll, I'll mention one of them now. So, what most people do um, is not 100% correct, and that is, what most people do is they, the, the, the person who's leaving the zimun will say, Rabbi Sanabarech, they'll all respond, Yishem Hashem Mabarech Metzavadalam, they'll say, Yishem Hashem Mabarech Boom. And then usually what happens is, the person who leads benching goes quiet. And he just happens amongst himself. Now, the Svaradim are okay with that. They feel that Zimun stops with that. You've already said Zimun, done. Ashkenazim disagree. According to the Ashkenazi Psaq, you have to say the, the first bracha, Hazan HaSalom has to be said out loud by the person leading benching. And if you do, if you say it quietly, meaning if pers- people who hear the benching do not hear the first bracha being said aloud, it's Shaloi Kedin, it's against Halacha. The person who leads benching has to say the first bracha out loud. When I was in yeshiva, when they would lead benching, they, everyone, would get, everyone would shh, and the person who led benching would say it out loud. You have to say the first bracha out loud. Ad kach, again for Ashkenazim. Ad kach, that there's a machlokes mishabru and chazanish in the following situation. Let's say you find yourself at a bar mitzvah, so you have a zimun of ten people because you get to say Hashem Hashem, and they're having one giant zimun. The problem is, you're so far away, you barely can hear the guy. And if you hear the guy, you're definitely not going to hear him say the first bracha. According to the Mishabura, it's better for people to split up, do zimuns of three, without the name of Hashem, at least so they could hear the first bracha being said, as opposed to doing the zimun incorrectly. That's how far the Mishabura says. It's better to split up and not have ten, in order to at least say the first bracha out loud. The Chazanish disagrees because he feels that when there's ten people, we follow the Svardi approach, which is the Iker Zimun is not the first bracha, it's the hearing Shem Hashem. But you see this, that when a person leads Zimun, the first bracha should be said out loud according to Ashkenazi Psak. But now I want to talk about what do you have to do? How many people have to eat in order, uh, in order for Zimun to be said? So it's like this. If let's say you find yourself in a, in a place where they're saying Zimun, and you didn't eat at all, nothing, you did nothing. So the halacha is, you don't answer what they answer, there's a different nusach. The nusach is, 
that if a person they say uh uh you say instead of that you don't say you say it's a different nosoch you should memorize this because a lot of times people don't realize it. You say Baruch um Baruch Shemai Tamiloy Lavad or Baruch Alekain um Baruch Shemai Tamiloy Lavad. That is the nosach that is said when you are in an area and you did not eat with them. Okay. Now let's say you ate with them. What do you have to eat in order to have a zimun? So when it's three people, lichad chila, all three should have bread. Let's say two had breads. The halacha is, a lot of people don't realize this, if two people had bread and the third person had mezainus or had vegetables or had a protein, had any bracha other than water, even a shahakal, let's say they drink a chash of a drink, they drink a tea or coffee, whatever it is, a soup, you could answer zimun. You could do three, as long as you have two people leading who ate, two people who ate bread, if the third person had a mezainus or shahakal, anything other than water, you could lead, you could have a zimun. Svardim prefer mezainus. Ashkenazim are okay with vegetables, but the point is, bidiyavit, as long as the third person ate something, you could, you could have a zimun of three. Now that's a zimun for three. What about a zimun of ten? Stalach is by a zimun of ten, all you need is seven people to wash on bread. The other three, as long as they ate something, it could be a mezainus, it could be a shakal, a hadama, a as long as the other three people ate something, you can have a zima with a shem Hashem. Now, unlike davening, where you need six people who didn't daven, over here you need seven. You need seven people to have wash, because you need what's called a ruba de minkar. That's one distinction. That's, a, that's another halacha that a lot of people are not aware of. Um, and regarding, regarding women, the halacha is like this. If the women ate with men, they need to answer zimun. If a, a lot of times you'll have it where the women are ate with men, a Shabbos table. They're required to answer zimun because they ate at a meal that had zimun, a requirement of zimun. Then they have to answer. A lot of times you have it where, the, the, let's say, they won't call the women. They have to answer. Now, if there are no, if there, if there are no men, now whether women could do a zimun on their own, minig of Ashkenazim is uh, some sort of do a minig of Ashkenazim. It's much more of a modern Orthodox. It's much more of a it's not, uh, it's not generally done. But if there are men present and the men require a zimun and they're making zimun, the women should definitely answer.